0: Spiritual Sword Media presents The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. ...which cannot move grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. When John wrote the Revelation, God's people were being severely tested. And in chapter 1, John gives us insight into the preeminent Jesus. And ultimately, Jesus is over all things. The Christians to whom he was writing were facing an onslaught of persecution and oppression. And by contemplating the great power and might of Jesus, and through this book of encouragement, They could hold on and go on and live a faithful life. We talk about the gospel narratives. For example, Matthew. Matthew presents Jesus as a king. Mark identifies Jesus as a servant. And so when you look at the book of Revelation, there are some things that are said about Jesus that give us insight into his character, into the nature of Jesus. I want us to begin by thinking about the mission of Jesus, first of all. And as we think about his mission, I want to begin by underscoring his preeminence. And there are some things that are said in verses 4 and 5 that lend insight into the preeminent nature of Jesus. Again, in verse 4, John said, "...to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come." And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, look at verse 5. There are some identifying traits here that give us insight into the preeminent nature of Jesus. First of all, he is spoken of as the faithful witness. Jesus came to declare God's almighty will, didn't he? As a matter of fact, Jesus would say in John chapter 4, verse 34, that. His will was to do the will of Him who sent Him. In other words, His will, His work, His meat was to do the will of Him who sent Him. And certainly that coincides with the redemptive plan of God. Jesus came to redeem the human family. But in chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus said, The very works that I do, He said, testify of Him. In other words, the very works that He accomplished here on earth lent testimony that God had sent Him. Jesus came in accordance, as I said a moment ago, He came in accordance with the will of God. He came to fulfill the will of God. He came to make known God's redemptive plan and ultimately to fulfill that redemptive plan. And so He is identified as the faithful witness and then John speaks of him as the firstborn from the dead. Now in the book of Colossians chapter 1, Paul said that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word firstborn carries with it the idea of his preeminence over or priority over creation itself. Jesus is preeminent in that realm. Well, how does that relate to him being the firstborn over the dead? Was it not the case that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Yes, he did. Did Lazarus die later? Yes, he did. There were others that were raised from the dead, only to die later. Jesus, however, was raised from the dead to never die again. And down in verse 18, he's going to talk about how he lives forevermore. And so he is identified here as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and then the ruler over the kings of the earth. Domitian was on the throne in the first century, the latter part of the first century. And he was running roughshod over the people of God. He wanted them to address him as Lord and God. Caesar worship was not uncommon in the first century. Well, John said that Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Again, this underscores what? His preeminence. That he is above all and over all. He reigns supreme. There's a second thing I want you to see. We talk about the preeminence of Jesus, but consider also his passion. John said, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us. Jesus Christ loves us abundantly, doesn't he? This morning we talked about the love of Christ. Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said in John chapter 15, As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Think about that for a minute. God in heaven loved and loves the Son. And Jesus is saying, Just as the Father loved me, so I have loved you. And so the Lord Jesus Christ loves us immensely. And because of that great love, He has acted on our behalf. Now we talk about Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The fact that he came to bear testimony to the will of God. That he came to fulfill the redemptive plan of Almighty God. Well, that redemptive plan involved a sacrifice. And so we think about his pardon. John said he loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. First of all, there's the idea of deliverance from sin. Jesus Christ has the ability to save us. The New Testament message, that is, the law of Christ, what we read, study, meditate on. When we look into the law of Christ, we come to appreciate the saving work of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. I am come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was lifted high on Calvary's hill. The Bible tells us that when they came to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. Jesus was put to death. And John tells us in chapter 19, verse 34, that blood came forth from the side of Jesus. Jesus shed his blood in death, didn't he? Through the shed blood of Christ, we have the opportunity to enjoy forgiveness, don't we? Paul said that Jesus is the one that makes it possible for us to be redeemed. He would say, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. In Acts 22:16, 16, when Paul recounted his conversion to Christ, he said, Ananias instructed him to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So when people come to Jesus Christ in simple trusting faith, Repent of their sins, confess His name, and are immersed in a watery grave of baptism. What do they enjoy? Forgiveness. Their sins are washed away. They enjoy the remission of sins, as Peter would say in Acts 2, verse 38. And then, not only have we been delivered from sin, but we are said to reside in the domain of the saved. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, John said that Jesus has made us, some translations say kings, other translations say he has made us a kingdom. And I think that's the idea there. The idea that we are a part of a spiritual institution. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the church. Those are synonymous terms. As a matter of fact... Jesus would say at the onset of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew chapter 4 verse 19. The kingdom of God came with power on Pentecost Day. Jesus would say to those in the first century, there are some of you standing here that shall not taste death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. Of course, that occurred on Pentecost Day about A.D. 32 or 33. The church established or set up Now in verse 9, John said, and John is writing in about A.D. AD 95 or 96. In verse 9, he said, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom. John was in the kingdom. So when we're saved from sin, we are placed in that spiritual body known as the church, the kingdom of God. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 1. Giving thanks to the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who has delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of God's dear son. He said it's in that sphere that we enjoy redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So those who are in the kingdom are a part of the body of Christ. Jesus is the king of kings. Kings have kingdoms, don't they? So the king, that's King Jesus, has a kingdom. That kingdom is his body, the church. And then there's a third thing. Not only have we been delivered from sin and reside in the domain of the saved, but we have the priestly duty of offering sacrifices. He said that God, that being Christ, has made us kings or made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Did you know that if you are a child of God, you are a priest? We are a priesthood of believers. As a matter of fact, Peter would say that as priest of Almighty God, we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. In verse 9 of that same chapter, he would say, You are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The church is God's holy nation. The church is the Israel of God, according to to Galatians chapter 6. The church as we know it is the domain of the saved, as I said a moment ago. And those of us who belong to the body of Christ, we are that holy nation of people. And we offer up spiritual sacrifices unto Jehovah God. One of the spiritual sacrifices that we offer Him is worship. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15... The writer there talks about how we are to offer unto God the fruit of our lips, the sacrifice of praise. And so as a priest of the Most High God, I have the responsibility of offering spiritual sacrifices unto God. So first we think about his mission. But then there's another thing I want to call attention to, and that is the majesty of Jesus. John in the Revelation pictures the majesty of Jesus. I want you to look first of all at verses 8 and 11. As we think about the majesty of Jesus, John pictures him as deity. Why is that? Because he's deity. He was God incarnate. Listen to what John said in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the the Greek alphabet here. He said, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Now listen to him. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What's he underscoring there? The deity of Christ? The eternal nature of Christ? When John spoke here of Jesus and Jesus here is speaking, when he refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, it really stands for the entirety of something. Sometimes we'll say that covers it from A to Z. Well, Jesus is God incarnate, as I said a moment ago. He has always existed. Do you remember Micah in chapter 5 at verse 2? When he depicted the birthplace of Jesus as being Bethlehem. And he spoke of Jesus as one whose goings forth are from of old. Even from everlasting Literally, it means from the days of eternity. And all Micah is saying here is that the Messiah, the Christ who is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, he is an eternal being. John in John chapter 1 said, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus Christ was the agent by which the world was made. And so in verse 14, John said, The Word became flesh. That eternal Logos became flesh. He took upon Himself human flesh. A body was prepared for Him according to Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 5. And so Jesus here is speaking of Himself as that being who is and was and who is to come. Now look, the Almighty. Do you remember Isaiah? the statesman prophet who wrote about 750 years before Jesus came to earth. In chapter 9, Isaiah depicted the Messiah, and really he underscored the deity of the Messiah. He said he should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Those terms describe the one that we know as Jesus. And then in verse 11, Jesus said again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last it's important that we see Jesus as the son of god i want to ask you tonight if someone were to if someone were to stop you at work or at school on the ball field across the fence at home and ask you who is jesus what would you say was he just a good man was he a great teacher yes he was was he a social revolutionist Well, we might answer yes to all of those answers. But who was Jesus? Most importantly, he is and was the Son of the living God. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is presented in chapter 1 as not just the Son of God, the Son of man. He was God incarnate. So the deity of Jesus, and I would point out what you think about Jesus will have a bearing on where you spend eternity. It will have a bearing on whether or not you are submissive to his will and acknowledge him as the Lord of your life. Peter said on Pentecost Day, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you have crucified both Lord and Christ. Jesus wants to be the Lord of your life. And the only way that you're going to allow Him to be the Lord of your life is to see Him as He really is. And that is the Son of God. Then there is a description of Jesus in chapter 1. And I want to just very quickly look at this description. Picking up in verse 12, John said, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Some would say that this symbolizes his high priesthood. Maybe so, maybe not. The book of Revelation is highly symbolic. Jesus is, after all, our great high priest. The Hebrew writer acknowledged that in chapter 8 at verse 1. The whole book of Hebrews emphasizes the high priesthood of Jesus Christ the Son of God. He said his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, I think symbolizing his purity, his holiness. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun, shining in his strength. I think about Jesus coming forth with authority, executing justice and judgment. And then in verse 17, we have the reaction of John. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But note, if you would, the response of Jesus, the reassurance of Jesus. He laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Isn't it interesting that when John... Saw Jesus, and symbolized here is Jesus in His purity and holiness, His great power, the fact that He is that He is the one who has the ability to execute justice and judgment. Isn't it interesting that Jesus fell, or rather that John fell down at His feet, but that Jesus said, "Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last." What do you have to fear when it comes to Jesus? Aren't you grateful to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is at your side on a daily basis? In John chapter 6, Jesus was said to have walked on water on one occasion. When the apostles saw him, they were afraid. And the Lord said, it is I, do not be afraid. When Jesus is in your life, you don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be afraid. I want you to think thirdly with me. We've talked about the mission of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, but now the might of Jesus. In verse 18, we have some guarantees given by Jesus. In verse 18, first there is the guarantee regarding the cemetery. Now, if you flip back and look at verse 7, there is the guarantee of his coming. So, look at verse 7. John said, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Think about the visible coming of Jesus. John said, Every eye will see him. And they also who pierced him, And all tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. The soldier that stood at the foot of the cross and pierced the side of Jesus, out of which blood and water came forth, will one day see the Son when he comes in all of his glory, with all of his holy angels. John said, every eye will see him. That includes us. When Jesus emerges from the heavens, Every eye will see him. We have not only the visible coming of Jesus, but the audible. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 said that Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. So, when Jesus comes, we will hear of his coming and we will see his coming. Are you ready for that day? When John said all tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, he's saying here that those who find themselves unprepared for that day will mourn. They'll be in anguish. Why? Because they are unprepared to stand before the King of kings and Lord of all lords. When John wrote the Revelation, I mentioned a moment ago that God's people were suffering horrifically. Many were being martyred for the cause of Christ. And they needed assurance that Jesus would be with them. And he was with them. And if you you go through the book of Revelation, the bottom line is, as a child of God, we win the victory. And to those of us who are prepared, who are ready who are living in anticipation of the coming of the Son of God, when it's all said and done, we will stand victorious. Not so, though, for those outside of Christ. But then look at verse 18. We talk about these guarantees, the guarantee of His coming and the guarantee regarding the cemetery. Listen to what Jesus said in verse 18. I am He who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Did Jesus not die on Calvary? Yes, he did. Did he not rise from the dead three days later? Yes, he did. Will he die again? No, he will not. He lives, as he said, forevermore. Now, you and I, we will one day, we will one day feel the sting of death, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This body will give way to death. We might like to live forever in the flesh, but it's just not possible. When Jesus comes, what he's saying here is he's going to empty out the cemeteries. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, Marvel not the hours coming when all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and come forth. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The last couple of weeks have been tough for those of us who belong to the church here at Olive Branch. We have buried loved ones. And as I grow older in life, in some ways, it's more emotional to lose people that you know and love. It's hard. And we stand at the side of open graves. And we weep with those that weep. We mourn the loss of people that we know and love. But Jesus is saying here, listen. When you bury your loved one, you are not burying your loved one one without hope. When Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He said, speaking of those of us who are believers, he said, we sorrow not as others who have no hope. When somebody dies in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are at rest. John said in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Can you imagine the day When Jesus comes, can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ literally emptying out the cemeteries? There's a cemetery that I pass fairly frequently in the city of Memphis. And as I look over across the way and look at the many graves in that cemetery, there are mausoleums, there are headstones. There are young and old buried out there. And yet I know that one day those graves will be opened. And those people will be resurrected from that grave. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 assures us that the body will be resurrected. This body, he said, will be incorruptible. He said, it will be immortal. One day we will go home to be with him forevermore. This is the Jesus we serve. We are serving someone who loves us immensely and who wants us to spend eternity with him in heaven forevermore. I'm thankful that life doesn't end in death in the sense that physically, yes, death will come, but my soul, my spirit will live on forevermore. And one day when Jesus comes, my soul will be reunited with, with my body. It will be an immortal body, an incorruptible body. And I'll live, I'll live forever with Almighty God for the ceaseless ages to come. As we say, forevermore. In closing, what's your view of Jesus? Do you see Jesus Christ and his mission is that which included you? In other words, Jesus came to save you, to redeem you, to reconcile you. Do you see him in his majesty and in his might? If you're here tonight and you're not serving the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you. Make the commitment tonight to serve the risen Savior. Live for Him day in and day out. I promise you, you will not be dismayed. If you're here and you've never obeyed the gospel, here's what you need to do. Believe that He is the Son of God. Be willing to repent of all your sins, as Peter said on Pentecost Day in Acts 2.38. Confess His name before others, Matthew 10.32. Be baptized into Christ Christ. Rising to walk in newness of life, as Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. And then be faithful until death. Because Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, at verse 10, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. That is the Stephanos, the victor's crown. To know that you won the victory. Jesus was talking to people. that we're facing a lot of problems, a lot of trials. And he said, you be faithful even if it cost you your life, and I'll give you the crown of life. I don't know what it will cost you to serve the Lord, but I know this, whatever it costs you, it's worth it. Live for Jesus. It may be that you're not faithful to his cause. Could we encourage you to come home? The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again and to see video archives, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love